0: So Revelation 15, verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. They are the last, the eschatos. That's where we get the word eschatology. And in them the wrath of God is finished, which is teleo, which is the same word Jesus used when He said tetelestai. It is Finished. And tonight, literally in Revelation 15, we have come to the finish. Now, you may look ahead of it and say, wait, there are, I count eight more chapters here. How can we have come to the finish? We've come to the finish of things on earth. But the reason why Revelation continues and will continue far beyond even things being completely finished on earth is because we're just at the beginning of the new heaven, new earth, and new Jerusalem. So we have come to the end, the, end, the, the finish, the precipice, I guess you could say. And Revelation 15 is the shortest chapter in our entire study through Revelation. Of, of all the chapters here of the 22, this one is shortest, but it is no less significant. In fact, we're going to have to take it in two parts tonight and Sunday morning because the significance is just too great. It's monumental. What happens and what chapter 15 does for us is it it sets up the juggernaut of judgment, I've called it. It prepares us for that. It finishes all of the instructive interludes that we have been in. We've been camped out for several weeks. In these uh, parenthetical sections of the midpoint of the tribulation, we get right up to the midpoint and we just stop and we hover and we learn and we find out all kinds of things. You may recall chapter 10 showed us a sweet and sour little book, the Word of God. And chapter 11 introduced us to the two witnesses. Who will prophesy through the first half of the tribulation period. It also brings about the seventh trumpet, which is the coronation, the heavenly coronation of Christ our King. And then chapter 12 gives the mega sign. Remember the mega sign of Israel. Also in chapter 12, the throwdown of the dragon. The flight of faithful Israel from the dragon and his henchmen to a place prepared in the wilderness. All in this interlude. And chapter 13... Revealed for us Antichrist rising and beasting, along with the false prophets, both of them being agents of the dragon in an unholy trinity. Chapter 14 began, and we behold the Lamb at the beginning of chapter 14, standing on Mount Zion with 144,000 of his sealed bondservants who have made it all the way through. And now they're standing there with Jesus. But chapter 14 also ended, you may recall, with that bloody scene of Armageddon. But not before three angelic messengers fly. And they come in with their messages. And as we talked about on Sunday, even with the last gospel of the age, as the angel declares, fear God, give Him glory, and worship Him. But with chapter 15, we get back on track after just one more scene, one more pause, which takes place right at this time as we lean out over the precipice, as it were, of the great tribulation. This scene takes place in heaven, verse 2, and I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire. And those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And so it's not only the 144,000 who made it, but here in heaven, the saints from the tribulation, standing victorious, standing on this sea of glass. They're in heaven because while they lost their lives on earth, they feared God. They feared God more than global pressure. They feared God more than the dragon and his henchmen. They feared God more than they loved their own lives. Jesus said in Matthew 16.25, Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Of course, you may recall Revelation 12, 11, They overcame Him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. And you know those three things we have right now? We overcome because of the blood of the Lamb. We overcome because of the word of our testimony, and we overcome because we do not love this life even when faced with death. No, instead, we fear God more than we love anything else. By the way, speaking of these who have come out of the tribulation, these who are saved from the tribulation, they weren't raptured. They're not the church. They went into the revelation in unbelief but found belief, came to faith in Jesus remarkably, wonderfully, and and here they are saved and in heaven. But where are we? In fact, better question what are we? At this midpoint of the tribulation. What are we? We're the raptured church. Don't forget this. Three and a half years into tribulation, we're the raptured church. And at that point, we have been glorified. We are bodily resurrected. Do you understand what that means? Bodily resurrection. We have had our full bodily resurrection take place. For in the rapture of the church, and you can study it, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses about 13 through 18 talks about how those who have died in Christ and those who are alive in Christ all are caught up. And we're caught up. Those alive in Christ are physical bodies, instantly glorified. As we're caught up to be with the Lord during this time, this tribulation, during this seven-year time frame, we're on a holy honeymoon with Jesus. Those who died in Christ, their spirits right now, already home with the Lord. Their bodies in the ground. But at the time of the rapture of the church, even as we go up in full bodily resurrection, just like Jesus, their bodies will be raised out of the grave, and their spirits instantly reconnected in a marvelous way that only God knows will happen instantaneously, and they are full bodily resurrected. It's important to understand that you're not going to lose some of yourself. Now, I understand some would like to lose some of ourselves. I get that. You're going to be glorious. Everyone. Everyone. We're going to look at each other and go, man, you are glorious. Dean, glorious. I'm looking forward to telling you that, you know. We'll look at each other and we will see the glory of the Lord and we'll be in this full bodily resurrection. But what about the tribulation saints? Now that's a different question. It's an interesting thought because these are people who died during the tribulation. And according to the Scripture, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Therefore, always being of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body, and to be at home with the Lord. And so what Paul tells us right there is if you die in Christ, though your body goes into the grave, your spirit immediately goes home to be with the Lord. Purchased by the blood of Jesus, redeemed, your spirit goes home. Okay? Now are you tracking with me okay on this? So what about the tribulation saints? They die in the tribulation. All of these that we are now seeing here, standing on the sea of glass before the throne of God, they're present there. So if they die during the tribulation, when is their rapture? When does that happen? How does that work? Their spirits, immediately upon death, go home to be with the Lord. Well, how do you know that? Well, you need to turn in your Bibles back to Revelation chapter 6. In case you missed it the first time, Revelation chapter 6, go ahead and turn there and I'll show you. Revelation chapter 6, verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each one of them a white robe, and they were told they should rest for a little while longer until their fellow servants, the number of their fellow servants and brethren who were to be killed even as they had been, would be completed also. Look over at Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. 7, verse 14. These are the ones who have come out of the Great Tribulation, or out from the Great Tribulation, And they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. For this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will spread His tabernacle over them. They'll hunger no longer, nor thirst any more, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. So there they are, the souls of those who die in the tribulation, they're at home with the Lord. But again, that doesn't answer the question, what about the bodies? So for that, we got to go to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First 1 Corinthians 15.50 On a little lamb trail here. Where Paul writes, Now I say this, brethren, and note this, it's, it's vital to understand that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. And we get so excited about that, sometimes we forget the next verse. 53. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. What is the mortal about you and me? It is our physical bodies. Full bodily resurrection. Our bodies, our mortality, will be made immortal. That's what happens, again, for the church at the rapture, instantaneous immortality. Where body, soul, and spirit, I'm I'm all there. I'm not like half there. A little confused, I'm not half the man I used to be. I'm all there, right? So when does this happen again for the tribulation saints? And the answer is at the end of Revelation, which we're not even to yet, but I'll give you a sneak peek. It's Revelation chapter 20, verse 4. Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the Word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That's when it happens. So for anybody who dies in the tribulation, all these who, their souls are with Jesus in Revelation 15. They're there standing on the sea of glass mixed with fire before the throne. That's their spirit. Their spirit man, their spirit woman, the souls, they're all there. The body's not yet resurrected. But at the end of the tribulation, so three and a half years from now in Revelation 15, instantaneously they will be full bodily resurrected just as we have been. The mortal will put on immortality. The perishable will put on the imperishable. And that's when it happens for the tribulation saint. And they're going to be resurrected for the kingdom. But even now at the midpoint, this is good news. Their situation is not grave. A little pun there. Wow. What's the matter. Casket your tongue. <laughs> okay. Their situation is not grave and they're not they're not dust napping. They are not soul sleeping. They're walking on water. They're standing before the Lord. They're standing, we're told in verse 2, on a sea of glass mixed with fire. Now, we've seen the sea of glass before. Revelation 4:6 before the throne was something like a sea of glass like crystal. So this this crystal sea that sometimes we sing about, we talk about, the sea of glass, but now, now it is a sea mixed with fire. Why? Because in the Bible, fire indicates the righteous judgment of God. Judgment is about to fall on this world like it has never fallen before. Even in the first half of the tribulation. Even through the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments and all the things that we have discussed and read in this revelation. The wrath of God about to be poured out is the full-blown anger, the full cup, undiluted, poured out on the earth. And it is fire. What did God rain down on Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire. First use of fire in the Bible is there in Genesis 19. Sodom and Gomorrah how did God first appear to Moses in a burning bush that was not consumed later God descended upon Mount Sinai in fire and smoke what was required to be stoked on the altar and for the sacrifice but fire and what did we see in Jesus' eyes at the very opening of the revelation remember it's the revelation of Jesus Christ we saw eyes as of fire Fire indicates the judgment of God. And the Hebrew pastor said in chapter 12, verse 39, our God is a consuming fire. Fire, it's judgment. And so here it appears that His righteous anger, and it is right, it is spot on, it is burning hot, and now it reflects across the Crystal Sea. There is fire there where there wasn't before. As things were just getting underway, as the church is there in chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation, and we're before the Lord, there's the crystal sea. But nothing about fire is being spoken of yet. Now we see fire mixed in. God is preparing seven angels to pour out seven bowls of wrath. But before He does this, in this marvelous scene those saints those martyred saints who came out from the tribulation which includes all of those who previously cried out revelation 6:10 how long o lord how long holy and true will you re- refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth all of them plus now all of those who complete the number of martyrs are now before the throne standing together on this fiery sea now this is wonderful Because here they are before the Lord and they are not judged. They are victorious. They are vindicated. Now, heaven is all about worship and praise and glory to God, but I suspect there may be some applause when these come out onto the sea. They are honored. Even as honoring them honors the Lord who brought them through and who saved them. But you know what? I bet they don't appear victorious or vindicated on earth. More like vanquished and eradicated. Or defeated and decimated. Finally, we're rid of them. We thought we got rid of all those Christians when they disappeared three and a half years ago. And then more started popping up. Oh man, those Christians. But now, now we're rid of them all. Those failures, those Bible-toting, crutch-walking, Jesus-talking nonconformists. They're out of here. In a world that honors strong flesh over a strong spirit, these saints who come out from the tribulation will not be lauded and honored on earth far from it. And I got to thinking about that this week and the fact that, man, when we stand for Christ, we don't have to worry about how it looks to anybody else. We don't have to worry if it's applauded or denigrated. We don't have to be concerned if someone takes issue with us or encourages us. We just live for the Lord. And God, and this is one of my favorite verses in all scripture I've gone back to so many times. God is our shield. Genesis 15.1 After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Or, or, I am your shield, your exceeding great reward. I am your reward. So I'm going to shield you through the battle, and at the end of the battle, I'm your reward. And the Lord promises this. And I think also Galatians 1.10 For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. So I go back to the question of Sunday morning. Is there someone you fear more than you fear God? Is there someone you fear more about upsetting than you fear the Lord in worship and praise and honor? Are we more concerned with how we might come off to other people than simply fearing the Lord? Because these trip saints show us something marvelous. They are not only victorious, but they stand vindicated. Their faith approved. These earthly throwaways are now honored as heavenly heroes as they stand on the fiery sea before the whole gathered assembly around the throne of God. And note that location, because as you look at it in Revelation 4 and 5, you've got the angels, you've got the cherubim, you've got the throne with God and the Lamb, you've got all these surrounding the throne, and right in front of the throne, center to the whole thing is the sea of glass, and that's where these tribulation saints are now standing right before the lord what what an honorable place to be and as they stand there before him they bust into glorious song verse 3 and they sang the song of Moses the bondservant of god and the song of the lamb hold it right there what is this this song of Moses song of the lamb it's a holy heavenly mashup I like that phrase, a mashup. We 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 see that in music and in art and in different uh, areas of entertainment today a mashup where you put two, two disparate elements together, you mix or you you create a fusion, maybe of two different songs, two different pieces of art that you fuse together. It's a mashup. So, slamming it all together, and in this case, what we have in verses 3 and 4 is a beautiful combination of the first recorded song in the Bible, and the last recorded song in the Bible, "Song of Moses," "Song of the Lamb," the first and the last, and both are number one on the Billboard Hot 100. And so they're now put together for this marvelous, amazing song that the Tribulation Saints are singing, that they're belting out from the Sea of Glass. Oh, I can't, I can't even imagine the scene. What is this going to look? Like? We'll be there. We're going to see this in person. You're not just going to hear it described. You're going to be there watching it take place as these who gave their lives for Jesus on earth are now singing His praises. These who, wow, we all thought they missed grace. But God's grace is so much bigger than we ever thought it was. And here they are, and they are worshiping, and they are praising God. The song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. And the song of Moses is all the way back in Exodus 15. So let's go back there. Exodus chapter 15. As you turn, here's the story. God had them boxed in. He had them wedged between two locations, uh, Pihahirot and Migdal. Pihahirot means the mouth of the caves, and Migdal means tower. And so as they fled out of Egypt, they fled down, down into the west of the Red Sea. And as they fled down there, they come to this very mountainous, jaggedy, peaked region. And in between Migdal and roads, they're wedged in. So what they have is they have the Red Sea before them to the east. North and south, they have the mouth of the caves and the tower, these big, stony, rocky formations. And then coming the other way, they've got the entire army of Pharaoh coming down. They've got nowhere to run. Nowhere to hide, nowhere to go, and God did it to him. He's the one who placed him there. Lord, why would you do that? He literally tells them before this whole scene takes place, "I want you to head head back and camp out in this location." That's often when God is most glorified. Is when we have nowhere else to turn. We've got nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. You can't go into the sea; you'll drown. Can't go up on the peaks, there's no way to climb. So if you stay where you are, you are done for. And if you go out to try and fight the army of Pharaoh, you're dead. What do we do? Well, you fear God. And you do what Israel did that day, you cry out to the Lord. If you look back at Exodus 14, actually, in verse 10, it tells us, As Pharaoh drew near, the sons of Israel looked, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they became very frightened. So the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Skip down to verse 13. But Moses said to the people, Do not fear. Now, wait a minute. Do not fear Egypt. Do not fear impending doom. Do not fear for your lives. Fear God. (laughs) But don't fear anything else. Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which He will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. What a great line. Verse 14, And the Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And by the way, that's that's a good word for us today. (laughs) Let the Lord fight for you and you keep silent. Because sometimes the more I open my mouth in argument, the more I lose. So just let the Lord fight. Let Him be the shield. Down in verse 16, As for you, Lift up your staff, the Lord says to Moses. Stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. And man, unpredictable. Unimaginable. Unprecedented. Nothing like this had ever happened in the history of the world. I know we've maybe you've seen the Ten Commandments and you watched Charlton Heston do it. Maybe you've driven through the Red Sea at the Universal Studios tour some point in your life. Maybe you've seen it in another movie, you know, the Prince of Egypt or something. Stop and think about what's taking place here, something nobody had ever seen. And not just the Israelites who are fleeing, but the Egyptian army who are approaching. Watching this take place as God takes this sea, and the Red Sea is, is no pond. And he begins to spread the waters apart. I I can't, even to this day, try to imagine what it looked like. I remember a Bible picture book. I think I shared this with you recently. And and the children of Israel walking through and a little three-year-old child looking up and there's a whale swimming by. You know, Love it. What was it like? And God parted the sea and Israel walked right through and the ground was dry. And again, it's not something you see every day. It had never happened before. It, It would happen again. Because the children of Israel would then ultimately, 40 years later, they would make their way around to the Jordan and God would part the waters of the Jordan. But even that was different than this. The Red Sea crossing was divine rescue. Jordan crossing was more like divine welcome. Like God opening the doors and saying, come on in to my land. But the Red Sea was absolutely a getaway, a deliverance of the people of Israel. Now, this is where we got to pause for a minute. Because these are just two of the numerous miracles of God that He has performed, or does perform, even today, for the modern state of Israel, for the Jewish people. There are miraculous stories, you can read about them throughout the scriptures, or you can pick up a book called The Six-Day War by Michael Oren, and read some miraculous stories that happened in June of 1967. You can pick up the Yom Kippur War by Abraham Rabinovich and read about some miraculous things that happened in 1973. In fact, you can just start to track all of the skirmishes, battles, fights that Israel has gone through in its 71 years as a modern state, as a reborn nation. You can read all of this and and the the wonders of what I believe, because you see these things, they should not have happened. We're talking today, well, I'm going to get ahead of myself. (laughs) Hold on, Rick. Whoa. They were massively outgunned, outmanned, and outmaneuvered in the War of Independence. Israel should never have become a nation. Read O Jerusalem. That's a book that, that is stunning in the fight for the, for the birth of the Jewish state. And when you read O Jerusalem, I read it and the whole way through, I keep thinking, I hope they win Jerusalem. I hope that you know I knew they wouldn't at that time. I knew it was lost. But it's so well written anyway. All of these were the Sinai Campaign of 1956. Six-Day War in 67. The surprise Yom Kippur War of 1973. The Lebanon War of 82. Lebanon War of 86. The Intifada against Israel from the, the Palestinians, 87 to 93. The second Intifada, which went from 2000 to 2005. And guess what's happening right now? You probably read that a rocket was fired out of Gaza, landed 25 miles north of Tel Aviv, which is deep into Israel. That's, that's, hasn't, they haven't gotten one that far before. And this right after our Israel interest meeting on Sunday. Hey, there are churches there right now enjoying the time of their lives. Trust me, it'll be okay. But this rocket was fired out of Gaza. And of course, if you read the news, and probably the only headline that you saw, if you saw anything about this, made Israel look bad and talked about how it was a rogue rocket. Hamas did not mean to fire. It was accidental. It was an accidental, like, oh, it just, did you see, I didn't, did you feel, I didn't do, I don't know how that happened. We come to find out a couple days later that Iran ordered it. Iran's behind it. Driving it. We find out also that Hamas is watching what's going on right now in Israel and wanting to cause disruption and disturbance all that they can. I'll tell you what, Iran does not want Benjamin Netanyahu to be Prime Minister of Israel. He's too tough. If you watch what's going on in Israel politically right now and compare it to what's been going on the last two years politically in America, it's parallel what President Trump has gone through and what Benjamin Netanyahu is going through are almost identical. All of these battles, all of these skirmishes were engaged by enemies of Israel for the sole purpose of driving the Jew into the sea. But just two days ago, something marvelous happened. Thrilling. And again, you may not even have heard Or maybe some of you dug it up or saw it, maybe one headline in the news, but on Monday, March 25th, 2019, President Trump once again reversed decades-old, irresponsible U.S. policy, in my opinion, signing a declaration recognizing Israel's sovereignty over the Golan Heights. Wow. Now I realize you, you prophecy buffs and you Israel interested people, you, you know what that means. A, a lot of people be be like Golan Heights. What, what's what's the big deal? This the Golan Heights is a mountainous territory that extends from the Sea of Galilee in the south, uh, the south of the Sea of Galilee. This is all northern Israel, but the Sea of Galilee all the way up to the the far border of Israel, right up to Mount Hermon. And that whole section it borders. Syria to the east and then Lebanon to the north. The Golan Heights. It is of incredibly important strategic value. So speaking politically, militarily, you got to have that land. From 1948 to 1967, Israel was under constant attack from that region, from the Golan. Syria just lobbing missiles. Snipers lined up to shoot at school children on the kibbutzes down there. The kibbutzim around the Sea of Galilee. First bus driver that we had on on a trip to Israel talked about how he spent most of his life growing up in bomb shelters. That they would be let out for twenty minutes or so a day to play outside, but then they'd hear gunfire and they'd have to make it for the bomb shelter again. And so, for all the you know, for almost twenty years, this was life in Israel. Constant daily bombardment by Syria trying to destroy. And then 1967 rolls along and Syria has massive tanks lined up on the Golan, ready to drive down into Israel and cut the country in half, where Israel was only eight miles wide anyway. And what some say is a miracle happened, I think it was. A handful of Israeli tanks, three or four, and the Syrians, driving down the hill, stopped. Turned around and went back. They couldn't believe they had gotten so far into Israel. And they figured the Israelis must have some kind of secret counterattack. We better go back. And, and they feared that perhaps we're going to get down here and they're going to start firing missiles over into Syria. So we got it. And they backed up. And <laughs> the little Israeli tank drivers are going, dude, we're awesome. You know? so many things happened in that war what happened by the end of six days Israel was halfway into Syria to Damascus and the only thing that stopped Israel was Russia saying knock it off you go to Damascus and we will enter this war and so Israel stopped and pulled back to the Golan this is territory please understand territory that was won by Israel in a war of self-defense and no country that has ever taken territory has been forced to give it back when they've taken it in war of self-defense. It just hasn't happened. And yet ever since 1967, we're told that it's occupied territory. Israeli occupation. And that's what you'll hear through the liberal press all over the place. That's what they will say. This is occupied territory. Well, for the first time since 1967, an American president did the right thing with the Golan Heights, and he declared on Monday, the Golan is Israeli sovereignty. Bless Donald Trump. i got to read you a couple of things that are just remarkable here. I I was sitting there watching this take place. And President Trump said, We will confront the poison of anti-Semitism through our words and, more importantly, our actions. In the last century, humanity witnessed the horrific consequences of anti-Semitism and a world without a Jewish homeland. In the wake of those unthinkable horrors, the Jewish people built a mighty nation in the Holy Land, something very powerful, something very special and important. There can be no better example of greatness than what Israel has done starting from such a small speck of sand, and he's referring to Tel Aviv, which was pure sand dunes when Israel started. Netanyahu got up to the podium and he said, President Trump, I can't I, I could do my Netanyahu voice, but I'll just let me just read it to you. Your recognition. No. Your recognition is a two-fold act of historic justice. Israel won the Golan Heights in a just war of self-defense, and the Jewish people's roots in the Golan go back thousands of years. In the long sweep of Jewish history, There have been a handful of proclamations by non-Jewish leaders on behalf of our people and our land. Listen to this. Cyrus the Great, a Persian by the way. Iran is Persia. Cyrus the Great, the great Persian king. Lord Balfour, who signed in 1917 the Balfour Declaration indicating that Great Britain supported a Jewish homeland. First time that that had happened. President Harry S. Truman who was the first world leader to recognize Israel as a country, and President Donald J. Trump. Listen to that company. Cyrus the Great, Lord Balfour, Harry Truman, and Donald Trump. And Netanyahu went on to say, you've done it not once, but twice, with your bold proclamation on Jerusalem, and with your bold proclamation today on the Golan. Wow. And by the way, this was no random political stunt. Donald Trump is being used by God. No other president two things that I can tell you about him right now, no other president has taken such a stand for Israel. No other president. And you can I'm just talking about actions, I'm not talking about tweets. No other president has taken such a strong stand for the people of Israel. And Benjamin Netanyahu even said, We have never had a better friend in all our history. And no other American president has taken such a firm stand for the unborn. That's huge. When people say, Why do you Christians support Donald Trump? Israel and the unborn are two great reasons. He, at least for now, we're watching. I don't know what's going to be unveiled after April 9th. When the the deal of the century plan is unveiled, unrolled, I don't know what it's going to look like. But I'll tell you something that we have seen happen this week Land for Peace is dead. It doesn't work. The whole idea of appeasement. That's why the world has continued to look at Israel. Israel's like a. If you you think about it this way, it's like an an oblong slice of pizza with chunks bitten out of it. As far as the world is concerned, if you look at Israel and down in the south, you've got the Gaza Strip and a big chunk bitten out of it. That that belongs to you know the the just people of Hamas. And you've got a chunk bitten out of it in the uh, in Samaria, which belongs to called the West Bank. Then you've got a chunk bitten out of it up in the top, which is the Golan Heights, and the people say, that's occupied territory that needs to go back to Syria. Well, guess what? That chunk has just become part of Israel. At least from our backing and standing up for Israel. I say this was no random stunt. This has been planned. This has been considered. This has been. I don't, I don't know if Donald Trump is a prayerful man. I don't know if he prayed about it ahead of time. But I'll tell you what, whether he knows it or not, he's being used by God right now. Six days ago, Pompeo was in Jerusalem. Something else happened that has never happened since the Jewish state began in 1948. American presidents, American dignitaries have gone to Israel and have gone and prayed at the, at the Western Wall, the Kotel. But, because of the situation being what it is, and because of pressures from the Arab world around, they don't want that recognized. Even the Western Wall Plaza recognized as, as Israeli sovereignty. So, the Israeli government has never been able to accompany any world leader to go pray at the Western Wall. Even when Donald Trump went, he went alone. I mean, he had his bodyguards. But no Israelis went with him. Six days ago, when Pompeo went to the Kotel to pray... Benjamin Netanyahu went with him, and they stood together. No wonder he's saying there is no better friend of Israel than President Donald Trump. Now, of course, the media has already jumped on condemning Trump for, uh, for signing this into law, for talking about this and, and making this a reality, the declaration. By the way, it's completely legal. It's completely within the purview of the president to declare and support a nation as, as he's doing. So the media, um, they're already saying that Trump has thrown away Israel's bargaining chip for peace with Syria. That's like giving a chip to a rabid dog. You know, come on. What President Trump is doing is he's changing the rules. And the rules always have been Israel has to give up and lose. Well now it's no, no, this is their land. Well how do you know this is their land, Rick? you're're just, you're just taking a political position. No, this is the land that God gave to Israel. Well, I don't see the Golan Heights in Scripture. I do. I see it there. Before I tell you where, listen. Joel chapter 3, verse 2 says, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. And it is not the right of human beings to divide the land that God has allotted to His chosen people. So all we have to figure is, do the Golan Heights belong to Israel as given by God? And once we know that, if the Bible supports that, done deal. I don't care what any president or prime minister or world leader says, it doesn't matter to me at all. What does God say about it? And the Lord has given this land to Israel. Again, I'll show you in just a second. But the bottom line is what happened here in the recognition of the Golan is explosive prophetically. The Golan. How do we know the Golan belongs to Israel? The Golan has a different name in the Bible. You might jot this down to be aware of it. The name is Bashan. Bashan. B-A-S-H-A-N. The region of Bashan. There are verses that talk about the cows of Bashan. And Og, the king of Bashan. That huge king who tried to come against Israel. Bashan is the Golan. So make a mental note of that. Once you make that translation, some things become very clear, very interesting to me. In this move of recognizing the Golan, more even than moving our embassy to Jerusalem is the explosiveness of this decision, prophetically speaking. The move will have a dramatic impact on both Russia and Iran. The move to Jerusalem, not so much. I mean, okay, so we stuck our embassy there. That doesn't change much. That doesn't change things on the ground so much. As far as Russia is concerned, let them move their embassy wherever they want. But wait and watch what Russia says about this. They have been very quiet this week. Other people have come out against the Golan, against Israel's sovereignty. No surprise, Turkey and Syria and Iran all immediately condemned President Trump for signing this into law. No shock on this one, the United Nations Human Rights Council. That's not an oxymoron. They came out immediately against it. So did the European Union, which that figures into our study of Revelation, by the way. The European Union is totally opposed to Israel maintaining or receiving this land. Now, this is more than a history lesson, so stay with me. Watch for Russia's response. Why Russia? What's the big deal? Well, Russia and Iran both have already poured literally billions into the war in Syria. And they're not doing it because they like Bashar al-Assad. They're not doing it because, oh, we got to help out those poor Syrians. It's strategic for the Russians. Absolutely strategic. And they want their money back. They have a major investment in Syria, which is right there at the edge of the Golan Heights. They want to get it back. They got to get it back some way or another. War is always a way to get your money back if you win. So watch Russia. Pay attention. Because these are not just geopolitical arguments. I want you to turn over just for a moment longer to Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel 38. We'll get back to Revelation. I know we're in the middle of a song. But Ezekiel 38. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, and I'm going to take you to a specific uh, couple of verses here in just a second. We read about an invasion force. It's called the Gog-Magog invasion. We read about this invasion force... That comes from the north and it involves, it combines Russia, Turkey, Persia, Libya, even Ethiopia gets in on the act. What's interesting is you don't see in this Gog-Magog invasion, you don't see Egypt. Israel and Egypt actually are on pretty good terms in terms of peace. And you don't see Jordan. Because Jordan and Israel are on pretty good terms, which wasn't the way it was even 20, 30 years ago. It's it's interesting how things have shifted, and now we're in a position where Jordan's cool, Egypt is cool, they're not involved, but these other countries have big issues with Israel. So you've got Turkey to the north of Israel, you've got Russia to the north of Israel, you've got Syria to the northeast of Israel, and all combining in what the Bible prophesies as a massive invasion of Israel by this coalition force. Ezekiel chapter 38, verse 9, tells us this. You will go up, you will come like a storm, you will be like a cloud covering the land, you and all your troops and many peoples with you. Listen, this is intriguing because, listen to the language, you will come like a storm, not like an earthquake. You will come like a cloud, not like dust on the ground. What does that imply? It sounds like an air invasion. It sounds like a massive air attack that is coming where? Right across the Golan Heights. The most strategic point of land that Israel has is the Golan. Bashan. Bashan. Look over in Ezekiel 39.17. Because what happens is this massive invasion is launched and God supernaturally will step in and stop it. According to the prophet Ezekiel, and the prophets are not wrong. But there is a day coming, it has not happened yet. We may, we may not see it. It, People are divided. Will we be raptured beforehand? Will we see this happen? I don't know. It would be cool to see it happen. But they're going to invade massively. They're going to come against Israel. By the way, in a land of unwalled cities... Ezekiel says which indicates a land that has peace a land that feels secure Israel has security fencing but I'll tell you what inside Israel we got security we feel safe it's a safe place to be and with the Golan firmly in Israel's hands and internationally recognized at least by the United States that's Israel proper now it's a land about we're protected now Unwalled villages, land at peace, and all of a sudden here comes this massive invasion, and God puts it down immediately. And in verse 17 of Ezekiel 39... We read, As for you, Son of Man, thus says the Lord God Speak to every kind of bird and to every beast of the field, assemble and come, gather from every side to my sacrifice, which I am going to sacrifice for you as a great sacrifice on the mountains of Israel, that you may eat flesh and drink blood. You will eat the flesh of mighty men and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, as though they were rams, lambs, goats, and bulls, all of them fatlings of Bashan. That's the Golan Heights. That's happening on the Golan. So all of this that we're seeing right now, it's, what's intriguing to me, I, I told you, I, I read O Jerusalem about the war of independence and I was riveted because of all that was taking place, not only the war, but geopolitically, how Israel was getting aid from foreign countries, getting smuggling weapons in just so that they could fight, how they, how they did that. And then the Six Day War—you can read about it and go, "Wow, oh, I, I would have been—I would have loved to have been alive in the time to see the interplay between these world leaders and what was happening in Israel. Wouldn't that be fantastic?" Look at where we're living, my friends. I mean, this is happening all around us right now. We're seeing things right now taking place. Israel in the news constantly. I mean, come on—when is the world going to wake up? as to how important these days are and what's taking place in front of us. So again, this attack, which is destined to spectacularly fail, will be put down where? On the Golan Heights. So, as I said, keep your eyes on Russia, Turkey, Syria. Watch these nations align. And let's see what God's going to do when they do. Back to the song of Moses, though. Okay, so back to Exodus 15. Just as happened with Moses and the people of Israel, a supernatural uh, deliverance from an attack that's coming on against the people of Israel, and here's the song of Moses, Exodus 15. Moses and the sons of Israel sang this song to the Lord and said... I will sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. The horse and its rider He has hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise Him. My Father's God, and I will extol Him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Chariots, Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. And the choicest of his officers are drowned in the Red Sea. <laughs> Note that. You've heard this. I, like, I just like to mention this because it's so lame. But the idea that the Red Sea is actually the Reed Sea... And it was really only about two feet deep and strong winds just kind of blew apart, a little opening, and they walked through. Well, if that's the truth, then it's even a greater miracle because the entirety of Pharaoh's army drowned in the Reed Sea. (laughs) Two feet of water. So pick your miracle. Either one works. They drowned in the Red Sea. Verse 5, the deeps covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O oh Lord, is majestic in power. Your right hand, O oh Lord, shatters the enemy. And in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send forth your burning anger, and it consumes them as chaff, anger perhaps fiery like on the crystal sea. And the blast at the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword, and my hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength you have guided them to your holy habitation. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Anguish has gripped the inhabitants of Philistia that is in the promised land. They heard. Then the chiefs of Edom we're dismayed. The leaders of Moab trembling and grips them. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. By the greatness of your arm, they are motionless as stone until your people pass over, O Lord, until your people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, and the Lord shall reign forever and ever. And the place of His establishment, the mountain of the Lord, is Jerusalem. One other thing I I forgot to tell you about Bashan. How do we know that God gave that to Israel? The entire land of Bashan was given to a people by the name of Manasseh. This was land deeded to the tribe of Manasseh. This was Israel proper. This was given to Israel by God. You can look it up in your scriptures. It belongs to Israel. It has ever since God gave it to them. And no one else is going to change my mind on that. So the song of Moses. You can go back to Revelation. It is a song of divine deliverance. A glorious song of a people who have been saved. And God has been doing it for Israel throughout the centuries. Even through the Holocaust. God has. Wonderfully birthed a nation through the pain and the loss and the horror. Israel came out of it a nation. The people survived. And so the song of Moses is a song of deliverance. So is the song of the Lamb, which is why it's such a great mashup. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. This is a mashup of the deliverance of Israel and the deliverance of the Gentiles. They're wonderfully similar, these two songs. song of Moses happens at the Red Sea. Song of the Lamb happens at the Crystal Sea. Song of Moses is sung by rescued Israel. The Song of the Lamb sung by the Raptured Church in Revelation 4 and 5. Raptured Church is singing that song. We're singing that song. Song of the Lamb is our song. Well, then why are the Tribulation Saints singing it? Because they're mashing it up with the Song of Moses. So it's their own thing. Song of Moses. Was about the people being brought out of Egypt. The song of the Lamb, about God's people being brought into heaven. The song of Moses is a song of rescue. The song of the Lamb is a song of redemption. But why the fusion of these two songs? Revelation 15, verse 3. They begin to sing, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God the Almighty, righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. O Lord God, the Almighty. Who are they singing to here? Is this song for Jesus or is this song for God? You know the answer. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it is. The song is sung to the Lord God, the Almighty. This is the fourth time out of nine times in Revelation where that name is given, Lord God, the Almighty, and it can refer to both God the Father and God the Son. And by the way, both deliver. Revelation eight, God the Son says I am the Alpha and the Omega who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty by the way that's a hint that's how we know it's Jesus because he is to come In Revelation eleven seventeen. we give thanks to you O Lord God the Almighty who are and who were because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign again that's got to be Jesus remember why because Jesus is coronated he's coming So again, it's about Jesus who is Lord God, the Almighty. This is, after all, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So why would it be the song of Moses and the Lamb? Because they work together. This is the song sung to God. Whether God the Father or God the Son or both together, it is a song of praise and glory to God, the Lord God Almighty. Who will not fear, verse 4, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy all the nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed now check this out that verse is a mashup in and of itself because you have two Hebrew scriptures from separate locations Psalm 86 and Isaiah 66 and they get mashed together in this marvelous song. Psalm 86 verse 9 all nations who have you who you have made shall come and worship before you O Lord and they shall glorify your name." And then Isaiah 66, 23, it shall be from new moon to new moon, from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. Psalm 86. Boy, we're talking about all nations coming and worshiping before the Lord. Isaiah 66, all the nations coming and worshiping before the Lord. The Song of Moses, the Song of the Lamb, it's a mashup of everyone who fears God. All nations, whether they're united or not, <laughs> all nations, whether they're European or Eastern, all nations will come before him and will worship him. And what's really interesting about that is that there will be, get this, there will be citizens of of the nations that come against the Lord and against Jerusalem who were not in agreement with what their nation was doing. There will be believers in the tribulation quietly living their lives, quietly in faith in Jesus who are going to enter the millennial kingdom. Nations who will worship before the Lord. Not in agreement with Armageddon, but faithful Nonetheless, not martyred for their faith, but somehow surviving the seven years of tribulation on the earth, and yet believing in the Lord, and they along with faithful Israel will enter into the millennial kingdom. Now, how do you know that? Well, it says all the nations will worship. And I know someone might say, okay, yeah, but but that doesn't mean that they're saved. I know that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ as Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's true. Believers and non-believers of this age will all confess Jesus is truly Lord. Some before their demise. So still, how do you know all that some of these nations are going to be involved? Zechariah 14, verse 16. It will come about that any who are left... Of all the nations that went against Jerusalem, will go up year to year to worship the King, the Lord of Hosts, and to celebrate Hag Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles, Feast of Booths. It's the seventh annual feast of Israel. It's a glorious feast. It's one that I've been so tempted to kind of shift our schedule as we go to Israel every other year and offer that opportunity for folks to go. And by the way, side note, if you're like, man, I I wish I could go. I'd love to go. I'm just not one of those who has all the money and is able to go. Hey, you need to meet some of the people who are going. And ask them how much money they have for a trip like this. Do you know how many people afford to go to Israel? They say, I want to go. They start praying about it. They start putting it away. Sarah went on babysitting money. Come on! The point is, if you want to go, you'll go. And if you can't go in 2020, Lord willing, we'll go in 2022. And if you can't go in 2022, Lord willing, we're going to go in 20... We're going to keep going every other year until Jesus comes and takes us home for seven years and then we're all going to go with Him anyway And so you can save some money and just do that. <laughs> but I've always thought about it. I would love to take a trip in the fall and be there for Sukkot. Because it's just crazy. It's a, it's a massive nationwide camp out. You know, the bridge camp out that we did last summer was a lot of fun. This is the whole nation. Everybody camps out. And they they pitch their tents all over the land and and they they stay in them and they eat in them and it's just festival and it's joyful and and it's that that annual feast that looked back to God's provision in the wilderness as God cared for them across those 38 years of wandering. But, thanks to Zechariah, we also know it looks forward to the Millennial Kingdom. The Feast of Booths, Sukkot, is the Feast of the Millennial Kingdom. Now, we will celebrate other Feasts of Israel in the Millennial Kingdom, but that's the one that that is most descriptive of the seven Feasts of Israel of the Millennial Kingdom. And so it will be celebrated, and this this Feast that looked back to their deliverance and forward to the Kingdom, and everybody on earth in the Millennial Kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, is going to go up to Jerusalem. We're going to show up for that feast. You may be, your area of, of oversight as, as a part of Jesus' royal government on earth, you might be in know, Yakima. Some are working for that, I don't know. You might be on Maui, I don't know. You're going to have some area of oversight, but you will be going to Jerusalem every year for Sukkot. And I have a feeling transportation is just going to be marvelous. It's not going to be like seven thirty-seven Maxes, you know. It's just going to be us going Jerusalem, and there we are. Anyway, I digress. Will everyone have to come to this annual feast? Because he says any who are less of all the nations will, that went up against Jerusalem, they'll now go up year to year to worship the king for the feast of Booth. So does everybody have to go? And that could be some expense, right? Answer, no. They don't have to go. However, Zechariah 14.17 says, it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. So your choice. You can go up and enjoy and celebrate and worship the King. Come on back home and have rain and, and, and all the goodness of the Lord. Or you can not go up and get drought. That doesn't sound very nice. I mean, that sounds kind of like compelled worship, kind of kind of forced. Listen. God is always a teacher. He is always teaching us one way or another in our lives. Why would God bring about a drought? Think it through. If people don't go to worship, they will experience drought. Lesson learned. There is a juxtaposition, even now, even today, between worship and drought in our lives. The more you worship, the less there's drought. The less you worship, the more you experience drought in your life. Notice I didn't say between Bible teaching and drought, between worship and drought. You want your thirst quenched, you got to be worshiping the Lord. It's the way to do it. Jesus stood up on the great day of Sukkot, the the last day of the feast, called the great day of Sukkot. And he cried out, John 7.37, saying, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Hey man, ignore worship, and you're going to get real thirsty and real dirty. But worship... And thirst is quenched and the dirt is washed off and God says just come worship me if you don't there will be drought I'm not going to make you come but if you don't you will experience drought I have to ask the question why would anybody want to miss that? Knowing that I could go up every year to celebrate Sukkot with Jesus in Jerusalem, why would I not want to do that? And Micah chapter 4, verse 1 says, "...it will come about in the last days that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of mountains, it will be raised above the hills, and the peoples will, I like the phrasing, stream to it." We're going to stream to it. Why? Because there's no drought when you're worshiping the Lord. Just rivers of living water as we stream up to worship Him who is the source of our living water. Ezekiel 47 even gives a graphic and literal description of what's happening in Jerusalem in the Millennial Kingdom. Ezekiel describes from the threshold of the house of the Lord in the temple complex, right underneath the threshold, a little stream begins. It starts to roll out, out from the threshold, down the stairs, out from the temple mount, it continues to flow and suddenly it's knee deep this little streamlet and then Ezekiel goes on to describe read it, Ezekiel 47 all of a sudden it's waist deep he goes further, it's neck deep ultimately it is unfordable. this river that's flowing and the river will part and it will go two directions one direction out to the Med Sea and the other direction out to the Dead Sea and the Dead Sea will come to life it will become a freshwater sea because of this supernatural river flowing out of the temple of God. Talk about not experiencing drought. Talk about quench of thirst. Man, go up and worship the Lord. This flood of living water and God creates a picture of it right there in Jerusalem that we will see with our own eyes. And this is really cool because we, we go down to this area. We go driving down there when we go to uh, the southern area of Israel. We go to Masada and, and En Gedi. And we're told in Ezekiel 47.10, check this out, and I love to point this out when we're there, it will come about that fishermen will stand beside it. From en to en there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. Fish! Look, the Dead Sea kills everything that tries to live in it. You can float in the Dead Sea, but don't drink the Dead Sea, or you're going to spend the rest of the time in the hospital. It's 33% salt and minerals compared to one percent or less of the Pacific Ocean. Thirty-three percent. And it's gonna be completely washed clean. There are gonna be little bogs of salt that will be good for. Salt so we can have you know salt on our food. That'll be great. But the Dead Sea is alive and this massive river, how do you know it's massive? Because from Engedi up to a place called Eneglaim, you know what Eneglaim is? We call it Qumran. Qumran. My friends, from Engedi to Qumran is a 22 mile drive. The Mississippi at its largest is a mile and a half. Twenty-two miles wide. Zechariah 14.8 says, And in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, the other half toward the western sea, and it will be in summer as well as in winter. Which means you don't have to have the rains. All you need to do is have the one who reigns, Jesus Christ. And we go up and we worship Him there in Jerusalem. Well, we're on the verge of something here. After these things, verse 5, I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple clothed in linen, clean and bright, and girded around their chests with golden sashes. Then one of the four living creatures, the cherubim, gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with the smoke from the glory of God and from His power. No one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Let's pray together. Holy Father, I thank You for Your Word to us. And Father, I pray that we will take away a recognition, a reality right now we are living in the midst of things that are happening right and left, this is a really exciting time to be alive. It's an exciting time to see what you're doing. How you are turning the hearts of kings and prime ministers and presidents like the watercourses Lord. How you are doing what you want to do. And you're showing yourself mighty. And so we glorify you and praise you and honor you and fear you for all of the work that we see You doing. Again, Father, we sing the song of Moses and the Lamb, even now, great and marvelous are Your works, Lord God the Almighty. Righteous and true are Your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify Your name? For You alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before You, for You and Your righteous acts have been revealed. And Lord, we are among those who right now are recognizing the revelation of your righteous acts, even as we study through the revelation of Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for revelation. Thank you for keeping our eyes open. And may we remain with eyes open, considering and looking at all these things, and all the more excited for the coming of Jesus. Lord, I pray encouragement. For everyone here tonight because sometimes we don't feel victorious. We feel the opposite. We feel denigrated just because we say we're Christians. Some some don't even want to mention it or speak the name or, or, or declare it because we know it's just going to make us look well in the eyes of the world foolish, weak, dependent. Well, Lord, I am a fool for Christ. And I am weak because then in Jesus I am strong. And I am dependent on You for life and breath and godliness. And I pray, Father, You'll fill fill us up with, with boldness and encouragement and with the joy of the Lord, which is our strength. Help us keep our eyes fixed on Jesus to the day of His coming and recognize all these things are coming together and this will come to pass. As sometimes we sing, soon and very soon. In Jesus' name. Amen. Are you dry? Tonight, are you thirsty? Are you weary? Are you tired? Do you feel defeated in this life? Do you feel like, man, I'm working so hard and I'm not seeing any good come out of it? I'm not seeing any change? My encouragement to you is right here and now tonight, cry out to God. Cry out to God. You feel pinned in? Cry out to God. Better yet, sing the song of Moses' and the Lamb. And the one thing about the Song of Moses that I've thought for years is how marvelous it would have been if the people of Israel had sung the Song of Moses before they crossed the Red Sea as opposed to after. Brothers and sisters, we can do that by faith right now. If you feel pinned in and struggling and in a difficult, tight spot in your life, praise God now for what He's about to do for how He's going to part the waters. I don't know how He's going to do it. I don't know how He's going to see you through. I guarantee you, if you'll look to Jesus, He will. So why not praise Him now ahead of time? Because our King is coming. Amen? If you need Jesus, if there's anything we can pray for you, if you want to give your life to Him for the first time, we invite you to do so tonight. Let's stand together and sing. We'll be standing up front to pray with you.